Hi, I'm Ewan Blakey, Senior Pastor of Oasis Church. I hope this message gives you hope and helps you take your next step on your Christian journey. We'd love to invite you to come and see us in person at 10 a.m. on Sundays or join us live every Sunday on YouTube. For more info, visit our website, oasischurchperth.com. To be here this morning, uh, to be with your church, uh, and it really is extended family, a whole ACC um, really is just one big family, and it's so good to be here. And over the last few years, I've gotten to know uh, Christy and Yui so much better. And let me just say that they are such visionary leaders. They've got so much passion, and they are exceptional in the way that they uh, think about where the church can go. But at the same time, they still hold a heart for every single one of you. And I absolutely love that. And um, I'm really privileged to be here. And I do hope that I don't get a reputation for being the pastor that knows about pain. Because that is not really, you know, a nice thing to put on a resume. What do you know about? I know about pain. But let me just um, kind of preface this. Um, I started learning about trauma and pain about five years ago. Um, because of that little guy that you see in the screen. Uh, not because he is a pain, but because, well, sometimes he is. Um, every parent say amen. But because my wife and I, we um, decided to grow our family through adoption. And so Sam is an adoptee. Um, you might not be able to tell that because he seems to be um, uh, a very cultural match for us. Uh, but through that, it opened up our eyes to the world of trauma. And to be the best dad that I can be, I wanted to learn more about um, how to raise this young uh, fella um, who, whether I liked it or not, did not have the best start to life. And uh, through the lessons that we went through, through the books that we read, we had to grapple with this understanding that trauma rewires us and it impacts our lives, whether we like it or not. And I also started in my studies to, to learn that Pentecostalism, which we, um, we are Pentecostals in this room, and I'm a Pentecostal. I, I sit on a, uh, an exec team of Pentecostals, but Pentecostals sometimes don't like pain. Because sometimes pain kind of maybe makes us question what God is doing, right? When I'm going through a situation that doesn't feel nice, I'm like, God, where are you? Are you taking a break right now? Are you, are you, did you just take your eyes off me? Do you love me? And, and we have to grapple with those things. And I hope that today we are able to dive a little bit deeper. And I hope that through this series that you know that this is a church that doesn't gloss over pain, doesn't gloss over suffering, but it's a church that wants to truly be an oasis for those who are going through life that gets a little bit dry and tough and sometimes it feels like you're alone, but when you get to that oasis, it's a place where you find life, where you find refreshing, and you can go on. And I love what Pastor Christie said last week. Yes, I did listen. I, did do, I do my research. I'm a nerd. For those who didn't know, uh, the, the, the series started last week. That's because you didn't listen to the podcast, and you decided to stay at home even though you should have been here. I get to say that because I'm not coming back next week. I go back to my church and I see all the latecomers coming in 10 minutes late and I go, oh. <laughs> but I, I heard the message last week and I love this thought that maybe us as a Western culture, we don't know what to do with pain because we've kind of grown into this space where we are able to numb or avoid pain really well. Uh, but I love how 
uh, Pastor Christy brought in that idea that pain is actually an opportunity. And I want to talk about that today because uh, I want to explore what this opportunity is that we have in Christ when it comes to pain. And I want to look at that through uh, one particular story, which is found in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. I'll read this quickly, and then we'll get on with it. And it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and, um, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We're not going to look at that verse ever again today. And that's for Pastor Christy um, to, to really unpack. If you don't know what Jesus was talking about, disciples, that's Pastor Christie's job. I'm talking about pain today. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my sight. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that you speak to us this morning. I pray that you show us how you view our pain and how you respond to us and what our response should be, God. I pray that you uh, help us to have the courage to take the opportunity that pain gives to us to be able to grow and to mature into the people that you have called us to be. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, how many of you ever heard of the nickname Doubting Thomas? Show of hands. Most people, yeah? I think that Doubting Thomas has a worse reputation than Judas Iscariot. Yeah? You know, at least Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he played a role in Jesus' death, which brings us all salvation. So Judas was a cog in, I guess, the salvation machine. But Thomas, we don't have a category for. Because Thomas journeyed with Jesus over three years, saw him uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, preach about a kingdom, and everyone was excited about that. But then, when it came to the crunch, Thomas doubted. And so we call him Doubting Thomas because we go like, oh, he was one of the lame disciples. Do you know that? And, and I think the Bible doesn't do injustice because after this story, we don't hear about Thomas anymore. But we don't know, we, we know through church history, this guy actually gave his life for Jesus. He died a terrible death. He, he was a martyr for Jesus. He wasn't just doubting Thomas. And I want to show you today that Thomas is more like any of us than sometimes we like to admit. And so when we get into this story, this story comes soon after Jesus died. Jesus was dead. 
and the disciples didn't know what to do. They had heard reports that Jesus had risen from the dead, but I think that in this point in the story, they hadn't really met with Jesus yet. And so what does it tell us? Uh, uh, John tells us that the disciples met together in a locked room. Why were they in a locked room? It's because they were scared. What were they scared of? They were scared of the Jews. Why were they scared of the Jews? Because the Jews had not just killed Jesus, they had crucified Jesus. Now, there's something that I learned recently about crucifixion, and that crucifixion wasn't just an execution. Crucifixion was designed to be a thorough humiliation. It was designed to erase a person from history. And that's why there are tens of thousands of crucifixions that have taken place in history, but we only have evidence of four or five. Because everyone who was crucified was then left and allowed to disappear. And so these disciples, they saw that their leader, their master, their teacher being crucified, and their thinking is, if the Jews did not just want Jesus killed, but erased from history, what are they going to do to us? What are they going to do to us? We don't have a leader. We don't know what we're doing with our lives. We have literally given everything to follow Jesus for the last three years. We called him the Messiah. We thought that he was going to bring the kingdom of God here. And now he's died and we're probably next. And so they went into a room, they locked up. And that's not even to add that they had lost a man who they loved and followed for literally three years. You're going to church camp, which is fantastic. I love camps. And in the three days, two days that you spend together, you make friendships and you talk about it for the rest of your life because you have this wonderful time together. Now, these guys spent three years in church camp with Jesus. They loved this guy. They smelled his body odor. They knew his habits. They did life together for three years, and now he was dead in the most humiliating, the most atrocious way that was known to humanity at that time. And so they locked themselves in a room, I think because they were traumatized. I think they did not know what to do with their lives. I think that they had come to a point where they were going, we don't know what to do. And in that moment, Jesus comes through the door that was locked, by the way. He appears to them and, and he tells them, you know, you, you can see my hands, you can see my side. They have an encounter with Jesus and then he recommissions them. He breathes the Holy Spirit on them and he reassures them, guys, the mission's not up. You're just beginning. And he speaks to them in that moment, reassures them, and that's what the 10 disciples had. But what the Bible tells us that Thomas wasn't actually in the room. We don't know why Thomas wasn't in a room. Maybe uh, the disciples were running out of food and Thomas was actually the brave one that actually thought that he could go get food. He could go to the market, he would brave the crowds, whatever it was, he wasn't in the room. He didn't have that encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He was one of the 11 remaining disciples, but he missed out on a very important encounter with Jesus. And so the disciples, loving their brother, run to him. They find Thomas and they say, Thomas, you, you won't believe this, but 
Jesus is alive. And Thomas's response is what gives him the nickname Doubting Thomas because he says, well, unless I put my hands in those wounds, I am not going to believe. And I sat with this for quite a while and I started to think maybe Thomas wasn't responding out of doubt. Maybe he was responding out of his humanity. Maybe he was just responding because he had gone through as big a loss as everyone else. And we kind of compare Thomas's response to the rest of the disciples, Jesus is alive. Well, they were in the room when Jesus appeared to them. They had an evidence for them to carry on with their life, but Thomas was outside of that, and he was hearing what they were going through, and he was going, I wasn't in a room. And you know what his response probably was? I want the same kind of evidence that you guys had before I'm going to be as joyous as you, before I'm going to be as, at much peace as the rest of you, because I didn't get that evidence. You see, what happens when pain hits us is that we start to kind of consider what our lives are all about. We start to question our truths and what our foundation is. You see, all of us, as we go through life, we have a catalog of truths that we hold. And we put them into our little folder, in our brains, in our memory, in our heart. And whenever we go through life, we pick from this folder and we go, oh yeah, that's how I'm supposed to respond. That's what it's supposed to be. But what psychology has shown us is that when pain hits, what we do is that we start to question every one of these pieces of truth. We start to question whether we can actually hold on to these truths. And I want to show you what's going to happen from here in just a moment. But I want to help you to understand that our normal humanity is to evaluate our future, what our lives are going to look like, the decisions that we are make, making based on concrete examples of our past. That is what we all do. For example, when you're a little kid, and you don't know better, and you see a hot stove, you don't have a category for hot stove. What happens once you touch it and there's pain that enters into your life? You know what a hot stove is about. You know never to touch a hot stove again. In fact, the person that touches a hot stove and gets burned and keeps touching the hot stove and keeps getting burned has a problem. We know that. But in the same way, when emotional circumstances hit us, when we go through life and something happens to rock our emotional state, our relational state, our thinking, we hold that in our mind and we refer to that. And that is why, as an adoptive father, I have to learn about trauma because when I did not learn about it, I thought that my love would be enough to rewire Sam's brain so that he will always know that he is loved. But at the first session that I went for this training, they said that your child might never know what it's like not to be abandoned by you. Can you imagine going through life? And now he was placed in our life at four months old, but the science is there. There is a wonderful book, which I haven't read, but I heard a reference many times, but it says the body keeps the score. And so at four months old, 
because Sam lost his birth family that he was ideally meant to be in, he holds the score in him. And let me tell you something that has been a truth in Bex in my life. Every February, when it comes to the anniversary of him being placed with us, when it gets humid, Sam gets unsettled. Because there's a memory in him, an emotional memory in his heart and in his mind and in his body, that when it's humid, it reminds him, I was abandoned once. Will I be abandoned again? And so when the disciples came to Thomas, Thomas had a very real, very concrete example of following Jesus and it leading to great pain and great loss. And the disciples were coming to Thomas and saying, Jesus is alive. They weren't just saying Jesus is alive. They were saying, Thomas, you get to sacrifice everything for Jesus again. Come follow him. Place your faith in Jesus. He is the Messiah. And Thomas is like, he's not just saying, I need to know about this whole resurrection business. He was saying, I don't know if I want Jesus to be my Messiah. Because the last time Jesus was my Messiah, I spent a few days locked in a room with you dudes, not knowing what my next day is going to look like. I spend my days worried that someone's going to come after me and come after my family. They crucified him, dudes. Why do you still trust this fella? I need a little bit more. And there's some of you in this room that maybe you grew up knowing Jesus and you grew up knowing that all the words to the songs that we're singing and you heard People saying that God is good. If you're like me growing up in a more traditional church, you would have had those times where the song leader, just to get everyone going, would say, God is good, and then everyone would go, hey, some of my people. They'd say, all the time. And then the song leader would be like, well, we've got to keep them going. And all the time, God is good. And you're like, yeah, man, that's what I grew up with. And you grow up knew, knowing God is good all the time. And then that thing happened. And then that thing happened. That scenario happened. That heartbreak. That accident. That loss. That pain. And it leaves you in a place going, is God really good? And you start to question the truths that have been given to you. See, in Christianity... It actually requires us to be more than human sometimes in a really difficult way. Because in Christianity, we're not basing our future, we're not making decisions about our future based on concrete examples of our past. We're making decisions about the future based on the concrete character of God. The difficulty about that is whether we know that the concrete, of, the concrete character of God is as unchanging as he says that it is. That is our struggle. God is good all the time. It's easy for you to say. I see your BMW parked in the car park. I see your wonderful house that is in that wonderful suburb, and I'm scrounging around trying to get enough money to feed my kids. So you can say God is good all the time, but I need a bit more evidence. See, Thomas's response was hugely human and hugely like what a lot of us do. 
As a pastor in the church over the last few years, I've seen so many people walk away from church. Why? Because the normal everyday life that they thought was so good with Jesus suddenly stopped happening the way it's supposed to be. People lost jobs, maybe lost some loved ones, and they're going like, what is this supposed to be like? And you're searching and you're wondering, what's the evidence of God's goodness? What's the, how do I know that God truly is good? And we do need to keep going in this story because what happens eight days later, the story continues. We find Jesus' response to Thomas. And Jesus' response to Thomas is amazing. But firstly, before we talk about what Jesus said, I want to talk about the fact that Thomas still went to the room. We bang on about how Thomas was doubting Thomas and how he struggled to make sense of Jesus' death and resurrection, but Thomas continued to be in the room. He rocked up eight days later in the same locked room with those dudes that he was basically saying, I don't believe you, but he was still in the room. And as some of you in this room today, you are struggling to make sense of God's goodness for your life. There have been things that have happened over maybe the last few days, maybe over the last few weeks, maybe over the last few years, maybe something from your childhood, and you're still struggling whether God is good or not, but you're still in the room. And can I just say to you, that is massive. That is huge. That is how you find your healing. That is how you find your next steps in your life. There are many people that I know of that because of the pain and the suffering in their life, they stop being in the room because they say that that room doesn't make sense to me anymore. And what happens when we are not in the room is that we give up the opportunity to meet with Jesus. And I'm not just talking about this literal physical room. I'm talking about being with brothers and sisters in the faith that can help us to see that maybe there are things that we are working through, but God is still real, and God is still here, and God is still good. And so Thomas rocked up. He was in the room with everyone else, and this is Jesus' response. Now, I feel like sometimes us Pentecostals treat doubt as though it's a disease. And I think that some of us would have this idea that if I was behaving like Thomas, Jesus said, I have nothing to do with you. You want to touch me? Well, have a little bit of faith first. What did Jesus do? Jesus replayed exactly what happened eight days ago just for Thomas. Did you hear that? Jesus turned up in exactly the same fashion, doing exactly the same thing, not because the rest of the disciples needed it, because Thomas needed it. And I pray that as you keep rocking up into the room, as you keep saying, I'm still figuring things out and things don't make sense, but there's going to be a day that Jesus rocks up to that room just for you to help you work out what is going on. But here is what I want you to know. That what happens here is so, so important for us to understand. Jesus shows the wounds to Thomas and says, well, you wanted to touch, here you go. But then he says something right at the end. He says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, some translations, I believe, says do not doubt, but believe. But in the actual Greek, that's not the case. You see, in the actual Greek, there is another word for doubt. 
And the word for doubt is more talking about how you are flipping and flopping between different decisions. But the word disbelief here is literally the word non-belief. In the Greek, is the letter A in front of the Greek word for belief. It's A believe, R believe. I don't know what you say it. But it's basically saying the lack of, the absence of belief. Jesus literally said to Thomas, do not stay in the lack of belief, but believe. See, what happens when we go through pain is that we start to evaluate our truths. But what we often do with those truths is that we look at it and we go, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then he wouldn't have died on a cross. And what we do is that we break down these beliefs. This is what disbelief, this is what non-belief looks like. And then we are left without that belief anymore. And so when we rock up into church, into the world, and, and we try to interact with Jesus, we don't have that anymore. That was what was happening with Thomas. He was in disbelief, non-belief. Now, Thomas didn't, because of the pain, have a revelation of Buddhism. He didn't have a revelation of Allah. He didn't have a revelation of how the world was supposed to work. He didn't have another belief on how he was meant to live his life. He just knew that that was dangerous. And so he broke that down. Let's see, maybe, maybe he had another belief. What was this one? Oh, 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 God is good, is he? Is God really good? Well, I'm in this room and I'm trying to figure things out, but I don't think that God is good. He didn't have a new belief about Buddha is better. He didn't have a, another new belief pop up into his head. He just knew, I don't want to think that God is good anymore. And maybe he started to think, you know, Thomas followed Jesus three years. He had given Jesus everything. And so he probably had this belief that God is worth following. But in that moment of pain, through that situation that was going on, he had disbelief. You know, I had a conversation, I literally preached this message about a year ago in my church. And I had a young man who lost his father at a very young age. And he came to me and he said, Nate, you spoke exactly where I'm at. It's not that I've got some new belief, it's that I don't know what to believe. See, this is what Jesus says to your disbelief. He says, have an encounter with me Learn about my unchanging character. Understand what I have done. And believe once again. In my story with this young fella, he stopped coming to church. He still hasn't come back. I'm still praying for him, but there was a realization. And I want, I want to say this because I think it's really important. Some of us think that we are working life out through our pain and making sense of our pain, but we're not making sense of our pain. We're just avoiding the beliefs that have been broken because of pain. And we don't want to face that. We don't want to know how God is good when I have faced this loss. I don't want to know how God is good when my child was miscarried. I don't want to know how God is good when I lost all of that. But what Jesus says to us is that he says, come to me. 
encounter me and believe once again. It's a step of courage. It's a step of great strength. But let me tell you why this is necessary. Because this is what the opportunity is. See, psychology shows us that when we sit with our broken beliefs and we start to examine them and we start to put them back together again, I should have torn it in a way that I can put it back together. <laughs> this is not going to happen. But we sit with it and we put it together and we wrestle with it. It helps us work out how God is good when that happens. It helps us work out why I can still follow Jesus when that happened to me. And I love, I love psychology, I'm a nerd. And not that you love psychology, you're a nerd, but I do a lot of reading in this sphere in particular. And this is what they literally call growth. The building of more mature beliefs and assumptions about the world that are able to stand the complexity of life. We need to go from Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we need to mature from those kinds of beliefs. Those are great beliefs to have when you're a five-year-old. It's, it's still a true belief when you're 50 years old. But do you understand that Jesus loves you is not just because of some words on a page, but because of what he's done on the cross. Are you able to confront the situations in life that have made you question and continue to explore even when it hurts? See, the opportunity that pain gives us is not the opportunity to win the lottery. It's not an opportunity for an easier life, but it's an opportunity to build your life on something that is lasting. It's not just my truth anymore. It is God's truth for my life that really matter. And so this morning, I want to give you an opportunity because sometimes, as my research has shown, sometimes churches aren't great having a space for your pain. Sometimes we want to pray that pain away. Sometimes we want to tell you to believe when you haven't had your encounter with Jesus yet. Trust us, we intend well. We want you to meet with Jesus because we know that Jesus is good and that Jesus is really the answer so forgive us when we are a little bit blunt forgive us when we are a little bit intense when we want you to find your healing but can I just say can we also provide a space when you're like Thomas and you're still waiting for your encounter can we have a church that truly is like an oasis where you might be journeying on your pilgrimage of life and you find a place where you're able to just sit and be and start to work out some of those beliefs. But I pray that this is also a place where you find Jesus, where Jesus comes to you. I love that in this story, Thomas said that he wanted to put his finger and his hand in Jesus' wounds. 
But the moment that he had that encounter with Jesus, it doesn't tell us that he literally went through with that. He was just putting in things that he thought that he needed. I need to have that kind of physical evidence. But when he met Jesus, Jesus was enough. Jesus blew away that disbelief and Thomas came to Jesus without even touching him, even though he said that that's what I need. And he fell in front of Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. See, I pray that a church, that every church will provide spaces for Jesus just to rock up. For every small group, every connect group, Every time two or three of you are gathered, that there's a space for those who are struggling with disbelief, with non-belief, to come in and to meet with Jesus and to have that encounter that leads them to say, my Lord and my God. Can we get the band up this morning? I'm sorry for making a mess. I was trying to make a point. And I hope that you hear my heart. I hope that this is coming through. I'm not giving you a trite response that what should you do with pain? Oh, just believe more. But my question for you is, if you continue on that path of disbelief, where does that leave you? Where? Disbelief doesn't have a solution for pain. Disbelief does not have a solution for evil. Disbelief doesn't know what to do with the problem of evil. I was speaking to that young man and I was saying to him that exactly this question, like, bro, what are you going to do about evil? He said, well, maybe I can do more good. I was like, really? You're going to become God in this equation, are you? You're not going to trust in God anymore because you think that God's let you down and then now you think that you're going to be better than God. You're going to be able to solve world poverty and the war in Ukraine by yourself, are you? I'm not trying to be snide here, but the problem of evil doesn't get solved through the absence of God. The problem of evil can only be solved in the presence of God. And that is what we have to wrestle with. So if you're here this morning and you're wrestling, don't feel like I'm trying to force something down your throat. I'm just saying to you, you've got to work this out. You can't avoid this question. You can't just scare around it and try to figure it out. Pain gives us an opportunity to find out what kind of immature beliefs are in our life that are leading us to immaturity. Pain gives us the opportunity to grow and to deepen our understanding of God. You see, I don't just know a God who loves me when my day is good. I know a God who loves me when my world is falling apart. I know a God who loves me when nothing else in my world works. Why? Because when I was in the trenches, when I was having a problem with my beliefs, that is where I met a God who was bigger and more complex than I could ever hope or imagine. A God who had a solution that maybe I didn't like, but it was a better solution than I could come up with. But sometimes believing in God hurts, doesn't it? I know I'm speaking to someone here. Sometimes believing in God hurts because it was a belief in Him 
that seems to have led you to where you are today. I don't know why, while preparing for today, I really felt that some people, maybe one, maybe two couples, because of that miscarriage, because of that miscarriage, you're so worried. You're worried to try again. You're worried to try believing in God, that God is good. How can God be good when that little child was not given the breath of life? I don't have solutions. I don't have a, sim a simple response, but what I know is that God's good. It doesn't take away that pain. I have a couple in my church, six miscarriages. I've got no response. I've got no response. What do we do about that? What do we do about loss? What about that person? What about that relationship? What about that? I don't know. But I'm going to take a leap of faith here. You are in the room today. You are in the room today because you know at some level that there's no other solution available out there. This is where the Prince of Peace is. What did Jesus do when he first stepped into the room? He gave him peace. Peace I give to you. This morning if you are wrecked with a lack of peace, can I say to you, peace, God's peace be on you. For that aching heart, for that broken heart, peace be on you. For that troubled mind, peace be with you. For that anxious soul, peace be with you. Come meet with Jesus this morning, because that's where healing is. And when Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe, try. Please try. Please give God a go. He's got better responses. He's got better solutions than I could ever come up with. And so this morning is not about me. It's about God. It's not about me coming up with some solution for you because I can't. I'm just showing you what the problem is. I'm going to give you an opportunity. My time is up. So can I just pray for you and I'm going to hand over. Dear Jesus, I pray that you are meeting people in this room today. I thank you that God, that you are here. For every troubled soul, every troubled mind, you are meeting with them. For every person who has got concrete examples of pain, of loss, I pray that you're still here to meet with them. I pray for courage in this room, for people to come and to meet with Jesus, to meet with you today, God, and to continue to meet with you every day. It might take eight days, it might take 16, it might take a whole year. But I pray to God they'll have the courage to keep rocking up. And I pray that this church will truly be an oasis. It will provide a space of rest. It will provide a space of restoration for those who are in pain, for those who are struggling, for those who are working things out. You are here and you are meeting with them in the mighty name of Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you that your love goes beyond anything that we could understand or imagine. And I thank you and I pray this in your name.